have to be honest, this morning my heart is heavy just in all that is happening in, in Russia, in Ukraine. Um, partly because I've been there, partly because I know some dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ who are living there and experiencing just the, the intense pressure and difficulty of that situation. Um, this is a, a, a couple of pictures. Uh, one picture of Pastor Vissel on the, on the left-hand side. Um, he's a pastor just outside Kiev, and um, the, the message that he sent or the email that he sent just a, a few days ago before the conflict ever happened will, um, I, I would think, ignite your heart with um, a sense of gratitude for the courage of this man and uh, his desire to love the people of Ukraine and to share the gospel in the, in the midst of, of real difficulty. Um, he says this, if the church is not relevant at a time when society is going through crisis, it will never be relevant in a time of peace. Please be praying for Pastor Vissel and his fellowship and all the other brothers and sisters who are there in Kiev. On the right-hand side is a, is a picture of some families, uh, pastors and families who are doing ministry about 50 to 75 miles or 70 to 100 miles away from, from Crimea. And um, one of the people in that picture is a chaplain in the Ukrainian army, and he is sensing a, uh, an open door for the gospel and um, I, I trust that you are partnering not only with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, but also our brothers and sisters in Russia who will be experiencing the, the devastating effects of, uh, of sanctions and economic crisis. Um, these are hard times. And I hope we're not cavalier or indifferent to, to the challenges that our brothers and sisters are facing. And not praying necessarily that the conflict goes away, but praying that God would use this conflict to open wide a door for the gospel, that he would strengthen and embolden the believers who are there to live for Christ when things are hard, that they would put um, the passage this morning to action that we're gonna look at where Jesus came, he says, to proclaim good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the captives, and of course, that has an immediate spiritual connection, but it wasn't independent or separated from a physical connection. And so often, the gospel needs to be coupled with both so that people can see that, uh, that God intends to redeem and to save an entire person, not just the spiritual person, but the, the physical, emotional, spiritual person. He came to redeem those who were hurting and lost. My heart is heavy also this morning because as we look at our passage today and we see the rejection of the Messiah from the people in Jesus' hometown, I can't help but wonder and ask myself this question, and I believe it applies to everybody in this room or, or most of us in this room, and that is, how can we miss the Messiah? How do we miss the Messiah? How can you wait your whole life for something 
and have it right in front of you, and rather than receive it, you reject it? How can you anticipate something that has been foreshadowed for hundreds of years, that has come through the prophets, and there is this rising anticipation of a Messiah figure who is walking in the land, and there he is in front of you. You finally see it. He finally says, I'm the guy, and you hate him. You want to drive him off the cliff. How can you love an idea of something and not love the something or the someone? How can we build for ourselves what I referred to last week is this idolatrous idea of what God has come to do. And when God doesn't meet my expectations, doesn't answer my prayers, my life doesn't go the way I expect it to go, that the things in the word I have put in order, I've done A plus B, and I'm not getting the solution that I want, so I want nothing to do with God. How does that happen? How do we miss Messiah? How is it possible for us to have access to all of the truth that God has given to us, to grow up in a church, to know all the stories, to hear about the Sunday school Jesus, to be in company and fellowship with God's people. And then when life gets hard, when God doesn't meet our expectations, we want nothing to do with him. We miss the Messiah. The unfortunate testimony of this passage is that Nazareth had everything going for it. Absolutely everything going for it. They had all the evidence they could possibly had hoped for. And we're going to look at it this morning. All the evidence was there. And they hated the Messiah, who was the culmination and the completion of all that the prophets had foreshadowed and prophesied. This morning, I want to just take us on a on a journey this morning. We're gonna break this up into two parts. The first part is to evaluate the evidence, the evidence that, that was right before the people of Nazareth. All of the evidence was there. And then we're gonna look at the rejection, the rejection of the Messiah. The evidence for the Messiah's presence and then the rejection of the Messiah will come towards the very end. Look with me, if you would, at Luke chapter 4, verse 14. That's where we're going to begin our study this morning. If you're joining with us and don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 859. I would encourage you to open up so you can see it for yourself. It says this in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. First, I want to point your attention to the fact that these people in Galilee, these people in Nazareth, had the evidence of the Spirit's power. The Spirit's power was evident in anointing Jesus for ministry. And it was unmistakable. They could see it. They could experience it. Jesus didn't just walk into Galilee preaching the word of God. And that would have been enough because the word of God is sufficient 
to save. <laughs> the Apostle Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you believe the gospel? These people in Nazareth and these people in Galilee, they had the word of God. They had the scriptures. It was sufficient to save that would have been enough, but Jesus walks into Galilee with power, the power of the Spirit. It's the, it's the word dunamite. It's the, the word from which we get dynamite, this explosive power of God that was present on and through the ministry of Jesus. As we continue our story in the narrative of Luke, we'll see this continuing evidence of the power of God marking the life and ministry of Jesus Look briefly at chapter, two, uh, ch- chapter 4, verse 32. Notice, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Chapter 4, verse 36, they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word with authority and power he commands? The unclean spirits, and they all come out. Chapter 5, verse 15 says, but even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Why? Because of power. Chapter 5, verse 26, and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe. Chapter 7, verse 16 and 17, fear seized them all. They glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judah and all the surrounding country. And the response was electric. The response was they glorified him. They glorified Jesus. Now, on the surface, that will come to us as, as a great indication of authentic conversion. But don't be deceived. Don't be deceived that initial reactions are not the barometer of actual spiritual health. And we're going to see that not only this morning, but as we continue to move our way through the narrative. A confused faith a counterfeit faith, an idolatrous faith that had built up in their minds an idea of what Messiah would be, but when he didn't meet their expectations, they rejected him and sought to destroy him. As long as Jesus met their expectations, they believed. As long as Jesus fulfilled the, the um, prophetic uh, anticipation that they had, then their faith was secure. But as, as soon as Jesus would expose the counterfeit nature of their faith, that we're going to see this morning in our passage, they rejected him. They had the evidence of the Spirit's power. We see in verse 16 of Luke chapter 3, they had the evidence of prophetic witness. The evidence of prophetic witness. Last week we discovered there was as much of a year of Jesus' ministry in Judea before he ever came to Galilee. And this prophet, John the Baptist, who was serving in the Jordan region, was there as this prophetic witness, this forerunner to Christ. And it was clear from all the people living in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Galilee, that he indeed, in fact, was a prophet. And John the Baptist... By the grace of God, 
came before Jesus to point the way. He's the guy. Look to him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus. It's that guy. Luke chapter 3, 16. John, in answering whether or not he was the Christ, says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. My ministry is inferior. His is superior. Look to him. He is the one. He is the Messiah. He is the prophet that you're all anticipating. And while I'm a prophet and while my notoriety continues to flourish, I will continue to point to Jesus. He's the one. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it calls attention to the, the prominence of John the Baptist's ministry when it says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to him, speaking of John the Baptist, and they, be, they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John the ministries, uh, John's ministry was gaining momentum. And Jesus, as he was, he was baptized, and then as he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted, then comes, as we find in uh, John chapter 1, he comes, and then he comes to the place just opposite of John, there in the Jordan area. In John chapter 3, we see that after this, this is after Jesus cleansed the temple, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. He remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anan near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Jesus sets up his ministry opposite John the Baptist for one express purpose. The purpose was so that John could fulfill his function, his purpose, and that was to point to the ministry of Jesus. John the, John's disciples become a little frustrated with the, the rising popularity of Jesus and the waning popularity of John. And in verse 26 of John chapter 3, they come and they, they, they issue their complaint. They say, they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And now John does what John does best, and that is point to Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. John, as the forerunner, this prophetic witness gave clear testimony to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. The second confirmation, this a present prophetic witness in confirming who Jesus was. The people in Nazareth also had the evidence of confirming signs. So what we'll see next, the evidence of confirming signs. In John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, we see that Jesus, after he had gone to, to visit John, he was across, uh, he was across the, the Jordan from John the Baptist, made a three-week hiatus back up into Galilee where he met Philip and Nathaniel and he attended a, a week-long wedding there in Cana. Jesus is there in Cana and this is where his very first miracle take, takes place, right in the shadow of Nazareth in the territory where Jesus grew up in Galilee. 
That was the first sign. And then signs would continue from there as Jesus would make his way back to Jerusalem for the Passover feast that was taking place there. And we find in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Again, this seemingly favorable response to Jesus, this this belief that seems to be on the surface, but don't be deceived. Oftentimes, what looks like faith, smells like faith, is even described as faith, is not genuine faith. And I'm concerned this morning that there are many who are here sitting in this service and many who are watching online who have lots of exposure to the the word of God, to the truth of God, who have even grown up in the church but are not genuinely saved. Your faith is counterfeit. Your faith is not sincere. Your faith is good as long as Jesus meets your expectations. As long as the Bible works for you in the formula of A plus B equals that your life is better. But as soon as the formula is broken, the whole thing is up for grabs. Is God really real? Is his word really true? The faith of so many in Nazareth and Galilee hinged upon how the working power of Messiah would help them. We'll see that in a moment. But Jesus knew that what lied on the surface, this this belief that seemed to be on the surface, many believed in his name. Jesus knew better because he knew their heart. He knew how fickle their heart was. He knew how much like the seed that's on the the shallow ground, the, the sun scorches it, the heat comes, and the seed withers away. Jesus knew their heart. He was seeking to direct their hearts to authentic faith and to pierce through the counterfeit notions they had made about Jesus so they could really, truly believe. Jesus was after sincere faith. And he used signs to confirm the testimony about himself. These signs that were happening all over Jerusalem. And then Jesus makes his way back to Galilee once John the Baptist is put in prison, and we find in John chapter 4, verses 46 and 47, so he came again, speaking of Jesus, to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. How did this man from Capernaum make his way to Cana of Galilee? And what was, the, what was the expectation? Why did he even begin to ask Jesus for help? Well, because he had heard what Jesus had done there before. And he was coming for his miracle. Jesus will confront the man and confront the crowd. And he will say to them, unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe. This man, gripped by the gravity 
of that truth still continues to beg for Jesus to heal his son. Jesus, in his compassion, in mercy, sees the the glimmers of faith that are existing in this man and says, go, your son will live. And the man turns and makes his way back to Capernaum, which is about a, a day's journey, and finds that Jesus had in fact healed his son. We find from John chapter 454, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. News about Jesus' healing power was beginning to spread. We find that there was uh, this expectation of, of all that Jesus would do because of the witness that had preceded him from those who had gone to the feast. We find from John chapter 4, 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. There was an expectation and confirmation of signs. This was Messiah. Look at the, at the confirming signs. Fourth, the people in Nazareth had the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. The evidence of fulfilled prophecy. After a brief tour of Galilee, Jesus comes to Nazareth. We find, again, in chapter 4, verse 14 of, of Luke, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then Luke says in verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. The significance of those statements and the reason why Luke, I think, begins the, the narrative of the public ministry of Jesus there in Galilee and there in Nazareth was to draw attention to the, to the confirming witness of fulfilled prophecy. Remember at the beginning of Luke chapter 1 where Luke is talking about all the things that have been accomplished by Jesus? Well, here's another one. Jesus finds himself in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the Galilee of the Gentiles, a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. Something that Matthew draws explicit attention to in Matthew chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, when he says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken about the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Here Jesus is, a fulfillment of prophecy. A prophecy, by the way, was given at the wrong time. Isaiah writing in about 700 B.C., writing about uh, a portion of the northern ten tribes. You can see there on this little map, Naphtali and Zebulun, the, the exact area from which Jesus would come and where he would spend about a year and a half in ministry. Naphtali at the time, as a part of the northern ten tribes, in 22 years from the prophecy would virtually be obliterated from the planet by Assyria who is coming to conquer and would obliterate the northern tribes of, of Israel and take them into captivity. This was not the time to make this bold prediction. And yet Isaiah speaking 
as the word of the Lord gives testimony not only to an impossible people, but also in an impossible time. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And Luke, seeking to draw attention to Galilee of the Gentiles, seeking to draw attention to the fulfillment of Isaiah in this prophecy, starts Jesus' ministry in this place. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Fifth, the people in Nazareth, as we find in Luke chapter 4, 16, have the evidence of 30 years, give or take a few years of Jesus living in Bethlehem and then living with his family in Egypt and before coming back to Nazareth. These people had the evidence of 30 years. Notice, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. One would have hoped and even perhaps expected that if anybody in Israel was going to believe, it would be people from your hometown, people who knew you best. This was home field advantage. They've watched his life. They've seen his character. They've attended synagogue week after week after week with him. Maybe he sat around the campfire roasting marshmallows, perhaps going fishing at the local stream, walking to school. Certainly in a small town, and any of, any of you who have grown up or spent any time in a small rural community know that there's no such things as secrets. And Mary could have never kept a secret of her illegitimate, as it was assumed, her illegitimate conception and birth. But here was this, again, fulfillment of prophecy. Mary, who was living in that city, and the news about this virgin birth certainly circulated among the people. They saw Jesus' behavior. They had heard the questions that he had asked to the greatest minds in Jerusalem when he was 12 years old. Many of them were close acquaintances, perhaps family and relatives of Mary and Joseph. They had had the scriptures, the testimony of the prophets, and no doubt had heard about Jesus' baptism, about the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, about the voice from heaven, the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. News about his miracles in Cana, in Jerusalem, in Capernaum had circulated Anticipation of the Messiah by the Jews living in that region was at a fever pitch. In any town who might accept the hometown prophet, you would expect it would be this town. But the prophetic witness would ring true as Jesus would say in our passage, a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. Six, they have the evidence of a divine claim. We see that in verses 17 to 21. This testimony, this evidence of a divine claim. Jesus himself saying, it's me. Notice verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down 
and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The number of synagogues that dotted the landscape were put in place for the express purpose of teaching and receiving instruction from the word. Jesus, in making this claim, came to a location that would have also confirmed the testimony of that claim coming to the synagogue. The the minimum number of Jewish men required to form a synagogue was 10. So it's likely that that of all the 240 or so cities and villages that dotted Galilee, each one of them would have had at least one of these synagogues. Synagogues were usually built out of stone, typically faced Jerusalem, and existed primarily for the instruction of the scriptures. The synagogues were by no means considered a replacement of the temple. The temple was the heart and soul of the people, but they would help to serve for the instruction of God's people. The synagogues had no full-time pastor or teacher, and those who were allowed to teach were given permission by the ruler of the synagogue. We'll come into contact with the rulers of the synagogues that Jesus will interact with throughout his ministry. There was another officer besides the ruler of the synagogue, and it was the attendant who would manage the scrolls. This scroll keeper would then hand the given scroll for the given day to the reader, to the teacher. They would open that scroll and begin to read, likely on a three-year rotation, moving through the prophets. In this case, Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah. On the perfect day, Jesus shows up in Nazareth to receive this scroll that would be the perfect fulfillment of the messianic promise that Isaiah places there in Isaiah chapter 61. As Jesus would read, he would stand. But the tradition was as, the, as soon as they would finish their reading, they would sit and then would provide their teaching or instruction sitting down. And Jesus begins to make this, uh, to follow this tradition. As Jesus reads, what they would have heard was a messianic prophecy, but ringing in their ears was not the promise of what Messiah would do for them spiritually, but what they could get out of Messiah in a physical way. Messiah would fix their poverty, address their oppression, would liberate them from Roman rule. He would restore them to their glory days. He would heal their blindness. He would bring the favor of God on them as a nation. Of course, They had heard and maybe even witnessed his miracles. Jesus did care about physical things, but Jesus cared about more than physical things. He cared for their heart. We find in verse 20 and 21, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You can almost sense the electricity of the room, the anticipation is beginning to grow. <laughs> Who is this guy? We've heard so much about him. Is he the one? What will he do? Here he comes. Now it's our turn. Now we get to see something spectacular. Now we get our miracle. 
And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The personal, divine message, the divine claim of Jesus, I am the guy. And all spoke well of him, verse 22. And all marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. On the surface, again, it seems like everything is moving in the right direction. The response of the people is where it needs to be. They have accepted, at least temporarily, the claim of Messiahship. But Jesus' next words will expose the counterfeit nature of their faith. His next words will dismantle their shallow perception of deliverance. And Jesus will turn their receptive hearts to rage. With all the evidence before him, before them, now we find in turn to their rejection. Evidence did not lead to reception, it led to rejection. We see the rejection beginning in verses 23 and 24. They rejected true healing. Notice, Jesus responds to them, their marveling and their speaking well of him, their gracious words that they seem to draw attention to. Jesus now helps him see what true grace looks like. And sometimes, by the way, grace is not pretty. And the words that Jesus will speak in the next five verses are punctuated and saturated with grace because Jesus was full of truth and grace. But let me tell you, they don't feel very gracious. They feel quite inflammatory and direct. And Jesus will blow things up because of grace. He's seeking to dismantle and shatter their counterfeit faith and draw them into true faith in him. That is not faith that is anchored or dependent upon a self-serving image of God, but on what God intends to truly accomplish in leading them to him, making himself the objective and focus of their joy. They reject true healing in verses 23 and 24. Notice, he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in our hometown as well. Do a miracle, Jesus. Let us see something spectacular. In Jesus, the words, physician, heal yourself, may seem very similar to the words that, we, that are quoted to Jesus while he's on the cross. He saved others, but himself he could not save because Jesus had a greater objective. Jesus had a higher objective. His objective was to save souls, not just to save physical bodies. Jesus was interested in true healing and sought to draw their attention to the healing that can only come from God as deliverer and savior who will fix their sin problem, will fix their relationship with God problem. It might be or may not be accompanied by helping to resolve physical problems because God does care about the whole person, but he seeks to draw attention to himself, first and foremost. They rejected true healing, and in verses 25 and 27, we see they reject true faith. Jesus will give them a picture of what true faith looks like. 
He wants to, to help them understand that they have everything they need. All the evidence is in place. Are you willing to accept God's plan of salvation? Are you willing to accept God's agenda? Are you willing to understand the Abrahamic promise that is not just for those who are living in Israel, but is meant to be a blessing to the nations? Do you understand how this works? Even in times of great struggle and depression, in verse 25, Jesus begins to tell them a story. He tells them two stories, actually, and he tells them these stories in response as kind of the exposition of Isaiah chapter 61. This reading that he has just done, he's giving them the explanation by telling them these two stories that come, by the way, without commentary. He says, In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. The message of Jesus to these people, his Friends, his family members, the people that he had grown up with in Nazareth was to call them to authentic faith, to call them to sincere faith. He uses these two stories to picture that, that Jesus, that God intends to rescue and help those who are hurting, those who are at their wit's end, as long as they come in faith to God and ask for help. If you remember the story of the widow, Elijah comes to this widow. The, the drought has already happened for at least a year, and Elijah comes to her because God has sent her, uh, him to her. The brook that he was camping out by dried up, and Elijah goes to this widow in Zarephath. She is cooking her last meal for her son. She has just a, a wee bit of oil and a wee bit of flour left. And Elijah has the audacity to say, instead of cooking that last meal for yourself, cook that meal for me. The only testimony this widow would have had was the testimony of the, of the reputation of God, the God of Israel. And by the way, that is the God, that is the Lord that she trusts. We find that in the narrative. It's found in 1 Kings 17. She entrusting the Lord and recognizing Elijah as a prophet of the Lord amazingly decides to trust God in cooking that last meal for Elijah. Her faith in God and the word of God that had, that had preceded Elijah was enough. And God rescued her while she was a Gentile living outside of the land and to the dismay of the hearers in Nazareth, this widow woman actually came from Sidon, who was the hometown of Jezebel. How could God love a Gentile who grew up and was born and living in Sidon, no less, and seemed to bypass all the widows of Israel? And it wasn't that God had bypassed them, but they had rejected the one true God. And God, in his compassionate heart, found this widow woman who had the glimmer of faith in, in the Lord and came to deliver her in her plight. 
We find the second story found in 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman. Naaman, in order to experience faith, had to go through a, a journey of humiliation. Naaman, who was a leper, who would have been rejected not just by those living in Israel, but rejected universally across the known world because of his disease. He had been humbled by his, by his disease, and here he is, a conqueror who is needing to ask for help. Conquerors don't ask for help. But God had to put Naaman on a journey of, of asking for help, humiliating him so that he could experience saving faith. He goes, Naaman goes to his, his king, humbles himself, asks that this king would send letters to Israel, the conquered nation, the nation that this commander in the Syrian army had conquered. Now they have to go to the conquered ones and ask for help. That king of Israel says, whoa, who do you think I am? I'm not God. I can't fix your problem. You should go to Elisha. So Naaman humbles himself again, makes his way to Elisha, this prophet, who had no ranking, no political authority. He humbles himself again, asks for help, and guess what? Elisha doesn't even have the decency to come to the door. Naaman is not going to get his miracle by the hand of Elisha. He had expected and hoped for Elisha to come to the door to put his hand on him. Something miraculous would happen and everything would be well. But that's not the way Elisha was going to do it. Elisha wanted to call him to one more step of humiliation, one more step of faith and trusting in the word of God. Go to the river Jordan, dunk in that dirty river, and then you'll be cleansed. Which Naaman does, and God rescues him. They reject this people of Nazareth, true healing. They reject true faith because they would not believe. And thus, they reject the true Messiah. We see that in verses 20 and 29. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The Messiah is standing in their presence. All the evidence has been given to them, the clear testimony of the scripture, the prophetic witness that had preceded, the words and claims of Jesus himself, giving testimony of himself to these people, the miracles and the, and the confirming signs that had been done around the, 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 the region of Galilee and Jerusalem were there. And yet they chose to reject him because they hated the truth that Jesus was bringing. This morning, as we briefly turn this mirror to ourselves, rather than looking at the, the word of God simply as a truth source, now we evaluate that truth against the, the, the hearts that we have, and we ask ourselves the question, are we also in danger of missing the Messiah? Are we in danger of building up great expectation of who Jesus is? And when he does not perform his miracle for us, we no longer want him. 
Are we those who continue to yield and submit ourselves to the truth of the word of God and and allow the light of the word to shine into our hearts and, and strip away from us those things that we have embraced for so long, those even those perceptions of God that we have had from the time we were kids and we allow the Holy Spirit to have his way to burn off those impurities from our heart and, and to help lock us into the, to the real truth of the word of God and allow his word to be authority, not just our perception of who he is, but the real Messiah. Is he your Messiah today? Do you believe? I, I've often wondered, when did the disciples believe and become converted? I think the answer is, They believed at every point at which they received new revelation, new truth. They responded in faith, and that must be true for us as believers because the just will live by faith, which means it's not a one-time transaction, but a growing process as God seeks to build within our hearts a growing, a nurturing, an abiding faith in Him that grows when life gets hard, that grows when life is good, that grows when God answers our prayers, but, but, but grows when He doesn't. At every point along the way, our response to God is responsive. This is truth, and I belong to you, and I seek for you to be preeminent in our mind, my mind, and not the things that I long to have, and even truths that are hard to, to grapple with. I believe because those are truths from the Word of God, whether or not I understand them. Do you this morning believe? Has God brought you to a place of genuine faith? Is your heart responsive to believe him another day as he reveals more of himself to you? Oh, may God help us as he's put us on this mission, not only to understand the truth about him, but that we understand that every part of life is meant to exalt the truth of God and to orient our hearts in such a way so we're aligned to the mission of God. That life isn't about me. Life is about the glory of God. May God help us as we seek to accept the Messiah. Father, I pray that you would help every one of us in this room those who are believers and those who are not. Because we come at a very important juncture in this message of choosing to believe again or choosing perhaps to believe for the first time. And God, I will pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. It is a spiritual work. We need the power of your spirit to believe. And as the man who had a demon-possessed son said to Christ, I believe, help my unbelief. And so, Lord, I pray, if there's any here this morning who is wrestling with faith, I pray that you would lead them by your grace to yourself. Give them a heart to believe. And may we, as those who are full of faith, express our faith wherever we go, in our workplace, in our home, in our communities. And may you be exalted by the testimony of our believing day by day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you as you go. 
Thank you.